Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome. I am your host, Michael Moorcroft. Thank you for tuning in to The Mage as well, your 101 guide to all things witchcraft and spiritual. Hey mages, so today I'm going to be talking about Mesopotamia magic. What and where is Mesopotamia? Well, Mesopotamia comes from the Greek word meso, meaning between, and potamos, meaning river, which basically references the land between two rivers of the Tigris and the Euphrates, and also the first crescent. And this is basically an area largely situated in Syria, and it's credited as the cradle of civilization. Fast forward to the modern day, and the area is in the Middle East, nestled amongst Iraq, Kuwait, Turkey, and Syria. It's a historical region that saw the birth of some of the first cities, civilization, and empires. Some of which include the Sumerians, the Akkadians, the first multicultural empire with a central government, the Babylonians, the Hittites, the Assyrians, the Chaldeans, the Persians, just to name a few. So today's episode is going to draw elements of these different civilizations and their approach to magic. It's pretty broad, I mean I plan to do episodes dedicated to specific civilizations further down the line, so like Sumerian magic, Babylonian magic, that kind of vibe, where I can go into more depth. Today is literally a whistle-stop tour. The priests of the area became almost legendary as masters of magical law and practice, as they conducted and recorded their findings and beliefs. Technicians and specialists organised themselves as a hierarchy of magic formed. Texts for rituals and procedures were written and followed for a host of issues, from banishing to protection, from wealth to curses, and this all fell under their spiritual beliefs. Now magic and religion, they weren't separate, and nor was magic and medicine, they were all interwoven and intertwined. There were professional magicians, and they went by the name Asipu, and they were also seen as the messengers of the gods, while Asu was a physician or herbalist. We can see some blending of these two schools, as illnesses often embodied an evil spirit. For example, there were spirits for stomach aches, and headaches, and bleeding. There were also the Baru. Now the Baru acted as seers, and these were the guys who practiced hepatoscopy and onithiomancy. I mentioned these in the divination episode. Kasapu, or Kasupatu, were evil practitioners. In reality, there were probably way more names for different types of specialists within magic. We just aren't aware of them at the minute. There's so much more to find, and what we have found, there's still a lot to translate. The Asapu would place clay figurines of various creatures within floors and by doorways to act as protectors. Often they were dog figurines, which was associated to the healing goddess, Gula, often invoked in healing rituals. Stones and gems were prescribed for having specific properties and incorporated into protective jewellery. Now, one of the main things that connected the majority of these civilizations was their gods. Though sometimes they have different names at different times in the region, they represented essentially the same thing, kind of similar to Greek and the Roman pantheons. 
The area had about a thousand deities, and a really rich mythology surrounding them. Mesopotamia contains some of the oldest stories and myths in the world, and the Bible took a lot of them, the fall of man and Noah, and many others. It's also from Mesopotamia that writing first began, and it's said the first things written were spells and rituals. It's estimated that 30% of the surviving Akkadian cuneiform tablets pertain to magic, spells, and the supernatural. The first writers of these spells were the Sumerians, and their texts would inspire and inform other civilizations that would rise in the area. It's from these tablets that we get the division in magic where it can be used for good or for evil. Mesopotamian magical practices and beliefs crept westward, and would later inform Greece and Rome, where they would draw a lot of mystical inspiration, which has influenced how magic has become seen and used today. Chaldean magic was heavily referenced in medieval Europe, and often Babylonian gods were referenced in texts and manuscripts. Ceremonial magic today has roots in Babylon. I mentioned in the divination episode that astrology came from Mesopotamia, and that they then passed it on to Egypt. Now, astrology came from the Chaldeans, and in ancient Greece and Rome, astrologers were sometimes referred to as Chaldeans. Mesopotamians saw themselves as working alongside the gods, and many incantations end with the line, the incantation is not mine, giving the power to the gods once it was invoked. There were generally four categories of magic. Liminal, which is where the target or object is transformed. Defensive, where evil is removed and repelled. Now, liminal and defensive, they were seen as good ways to use magic. We've got aggressive, which is where the practitioner gains strength or power. Aggressive magic falls into a murky grey area. And finally we have evil. Now this was illegal and aggressive, and revolved around people getting harmed. It could be in the form of love spells, rituals for gaining power over your enemies, impressing the king, that kind of thing. The fact that it came from an unauthorised person made it evil. But I'd imagine that this is a massive oversimplification. It's also been suggested that foreign enemies of the king could be accused of this type of magic, and therefore possibly justify war. There's a lot of text mentioning evil magic, but from legal documents there doesn't seem to be any evidence of mass witch hunts or any burnings. Now I had an episode planned for Icelandic magic that I lost, I'm not quite over the trauma of it yet, but I will find the research and put it together again, but I need to cool down. Now why I mention this is because in Iceland and other parts of Europe, when someone was accused of witchcraft, the accuser could stand to gain the person's property of that they'd accused. This could happen in Mesopotamia, but that was brought in later. It was still a very different story in comparison to its European counterpart. If a person was accused, and there was no evidence of their evil doings, they had to undergo an ordeal. If they passed, the accuser was dealt with as if they'd brought a false charge forward and they were executed. So that's one reason why there was little or no mass hysteria. A second reason was that anti-witchcraft spells and anti-sorcery rituals were perfectly legal and were a legitimate way of easing tension and social anxieties around malpractice. They were a safe space to display fear and process it. It empowered people who felt they'd fallen under a curse and gave them hope and release in the face of their fears and anxieties. Therefore, keeping a balance and showing a more healthier and advanced outlook than that of early modern Europe. Anti-witchcraft spells also called for clay figures, which would be a stand-in for the evildoer, which would be pierced with date thorns or odorous fish oil would be poured over it. The victim would then wash themselves over the figures in an effort to return the evil magic back to the sender, before stepping on the figurines, symbolising a victory. One of the most widespread and popular anti-sorcery rituals was a text called the Maklu, meaning burn, 
So it's also known as the Burning Series. It's a long, elaborate ritual aimed at protection and combating witchcraft and weakening the malicious spellcaster. It's kind of like an ancient exorcism. From this text, it reinforces the idea that magic could either be practiced openly and through legitimate channels, which I mentioned briefly earlier, i.e. someone from a priestly background or class, or in secrecy and have evil intent and therefore be illegal. The ritual also implies that evil casters could trick the gods into working as agents for the evil doer. Now through the ritual, the victim and or the spellcaster reveals their deception to the gods so that they would do a 180 and thwart the evil doer. I was going to include it in here, but it has around 100 incantations and it's set over 9 tablets. So yeah, you can see why that didn't happen. But I did manage to find a shorter version that I've adapted, added notes in, modernized slightly, and it was really fun actually. I've put it on my Patreon. It's easy with a few ingredients, and boy is it powerful. Rituals and beliefs. There's evidence to suggest that psychoactive substances were used in ritualistic settings, particularly opium and cannabis. In one site called Ebla, there was a kitchen discovered near the heart of the palace that has no evidence of food preparation. But within, there are pots with residues of opium, as well as other wild and healing plants. Equipment that could hold 40 to 70 litres suggests that some serious quantities were being churned out and cooked up. Tablets found there mention special priests and ritualistic beverages. And given the kitchen's location, we can easily speculate that this was all for ceremonial occasions. The line between medicine and psychoactive substances, and therefore spiritual practices, is often blurred in ancient societies. Dust from a temple was also incredibly powerful, and cut hair and toenails were buried, as were old items of clothing. This was so a sorcerer couldn't get hold of them and use them for evil magic. Majors, my sugar pot spell, it's ready. We can lift off, and I want your cup to overrunneth. Sugar pot spells are traditionally used to sweeten your life and bring joy. And who doesn't want more of that? I mean, I do. Subscribe to the link in the description and you can be added. What are you waiting for? There's no time to lose. Guys, I'm doing a tarot competition. To celebrate my last divination episode, I thought I would offer one lucky winner a chance to win a two-hour reading with me. But you've got to be in it to win it. Head over to my Instagram, you'll see the post. It's a tarot picture and there's competition time written over it. I mean, you really can't miss it. How to enter is in the captions and it closes on the 19th of July. So enter and good luck. Demons and ghosts. They also believe that the land held spirits and demons. Not the Christian sort, they view demons slightly differently. The demons could act independently, or they could carry out the punishment of the gods without the gods getting their hands dirty. Also, demons were sometimes invoked to fight off other demons, and often amulets containing a certain demon with inscriptions and incantations was worn to ward off that demon itself. One of these demons was a prototype for Lilith, Bible Adam's first wife. The high infant mortality rate was credited to Lamashtu, a female demon. Pregnant women would wear an amulet of her, Lamashtu, to keep themselves safe. This demon could also make people sick. A common ritual based around this is as follows. Three of Lamashtu's statues are placed near a person who has fallen ill. 
The first is burnt, the second is banished to the desert, and the third is stabbed with a needle, and then it's followed with elaborate incantations. Now crying babies were said to attract the attention of this entity. So to counter it, lullabies were sung as the parents sprinkled dust from an important street, a doorway, or even a grave. Also it was believed that the noise of the crying baby would scare away or anger the house spirit, and that in itself could bring about disaster on the family. Gidem or Etumu were these Sumerian and Akkadian words for ghost. The underworld was a bleak place, with little to eat or drink. Therefore, it was the descendants' job to provide offerings for their ancestors, so they would have sustenance. Ghosts could leave the underworld for revenge, or if they weren't adequately buried. Possession by ghosts was thought to occur by the ghost entering the ear of a victim and taking over their mind. Pain or ringing in the ears was a precursor for this. Incantation bowls. Incantation bowls were used in the capturing of demons. They were serial-sized bowls that contained writing that spiralled from the centre of the bowl, creeping around the inside until it reached the rim of the bowl. The bowl would be buried upside down, creating a dome, and the writing was often incantations and spells to trap demons under the bowl and to contain it. The bowl's placement was very important as they were specialised for their location. Often the owner's name appears in the bowl's writings. One of the incantations reads as such. Sealed and countersealed are the house, dwelling, possessions, sons, daughters, cattle, fetus, seed and soul of Ahai, son of Ishpandamind, and Ishpandamind, daughter of Quiomta, his wife and all the members of their household. They are sealed and countersealed from a demon, from a persecutor, from a male and female idol, from Lilith, male and female, from evil sorceries, from evil eye and evil envy and anything evil. Sometimes two bowls could be glued together. Inscribed eggs were sometimes placed under the bowls in what is thought to act as an offering or a sacrifice to appease and placate the demon the bowl captured. Now I couldn't get an exact date as to when they started off, though they do come up in use in the common era around 6th to 8th century. It's difficult though, there's not a lot of research on them Archaeologists at the time wasn't major on studying the spiritual beliefs of a society, and these bowls kind of got overlooked, and also a lot of them are actually in private hands. They sometimes contain biblical passages within them, so I'm not sure you can strictly label them as Mesopotamian and pagan, but I like the sound of them, and I thought I'd add them in, but that is something to bear in mind. Anuma Anu Enlil Another text to mention is the Anuma Anu Enlil, it contains over 7,000 entries on celestial and planetary movements, and relates them to the state and the ruling king of that time. One part, observing Venus, covers a period of over hundreds of years. They were basically astrology reports, to aid the king's rule. One report reads as such. If the moon becomes visible on the first day, reliable speech, the land will be happy. If the day reaches its normal length, a reign of long days. If the moon at its appearance wears a crown, the king will reach the highest rank. The king was sent regular updates from those who were tasked at watching the planets in the skies, and drawing conclusions from them, and deciphering their meanings. Planets also feature in another set of spells, known as Evil Be Gone. It contains invocations of the planets, and stars known at the time, to keep evil away. I've come across a chant that I thought I'd share with you. It's designed to affirm your value and your place within the cosmos, and it also calls on powerful protection. And it goes, I am pleasing, I am pleasing. 
Heaven takes pleasure in me. Earth takes pleasure in me. The oceans take pleasure in me. The sky takes pleasure in me. And here you would insert your deity's name. Takes pleasure in me. The sun takes pleasure in me. The moon takes pleasure in me. My mother takes pleasure in me. And then you can add your own chant here. And then you would conclude with, May any evil magic on me be dispelled. May any evil magic on me be removed. There's a strange little belief in the area that worms eat teeth and that they cause the holes. This has come from a local creation myth. When Anu, one of the gods, created the heavens, the earth created the rivers, the rivers the canals, and the canals the marshes, which in turn created the worm. And the worm came weeping before Ea, saying, What wilt thou give for my food? What wilt thou give for my devouring? I will give thee ripe figs, replied the god, ripe figs and scented wood. Bah, replied the worm. What are ripe figs to me, or what is scented wood? Let me drink among the teeth, and batten on the gums, that I may devour the blood of the teeth and the strength thereof. Hey, majors. For next week, I'm going to do a simple spell, and I thought maybe while you listen to me, you could also do it. It's simple, and you'll need a white candle. If it could be shaped like praying hands or a person, that'd be great. If not, a simple candle will do. And if you soak some hyssop in olive oil, that would be amazing, though not necessary. Tune in next week and we can do a spell together. And majors, that's it. That's a wrap for today's show. Thank you so much for listening. My intent with this podcast is to provide guidance and inspiration for those on their spiritual path. I also want to connect you to information that is both useful and reliable. Would you like to support me and encourage me in creating more episodes? With your support, I can give the podcast more time and create more quality content. You can support me through Patreon and gain access to exclusive content and be part of the Majorswell community, as well as being in the communal sugarpot spell. The link is in the episode description. You could also support me by following my Instagram at the Majorswell, leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, and telling your friends about the show. Please get in touch with anything you'd wish to share at themajorswell at gmail.com, and you may just get featured. A big thank you to Coral St. Clair for the podcast artwork and to Cecily Klim for editing. Before I go, I'm going to leave you with a poem called The Seven Evil Spirits, and it's translated by R.C. Thompson, and it comes from an Assyrian tablet, and it's about vampires. Seven are they, seven are they, in the ocean deep, seven are they, battening in heaven, seven are they, bred in the depths of the ocean, not male nor female are they, but are as the roaming wind blast. No wife have they, no son can they beget, knowing neither mercy nor pity. They hearken not to prayer, to prayer. They are as horses reared amid the hills. The evil ones of E, throne-bearers to the gods are they. They stand in the highway to befoul the path. Evil are they, evil are they. Seven are they, seven are they. Twice seven are they. Destructive storms and evil winds are they, an evil blast that heraldeth the baneful storm, an evil blast forerunner of the baleful storm. And they are mighty children, mighty sons, 
heralds of pestilence, throne-bearers of Erexacal. They are the flood which rusheth through the land. Seven gods of the broad earth, seven robber gods are they, seven gods of might, seven evil demons, seven evil demons of oppression, seven in heaven and seven on earth. Spirits that minish heaven and earth, that minish the land, spirits that minish the land, of giant strength and giant tread. Demons like raging bulls, great ghosts, ghosts that break through all houses, demons that have no shame, seven are they, knowing no care, they grind the land like corn, knowing no mercy, they rage against mankind, they spill their blood like rain, devouring their flesh and sucking their veins. They are demons full of violence, ceaselessly devouring blood. Peace out, witches.